In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show, streaming now on AJC.com. Hip-hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents... Hip-hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop story. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants your rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny... One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop. Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the Politically Georgia podcast, where we bring you news and analysis from all the latest Georgia shenanigans in Congress and under the Gold Dome. And today we're joined by Tia Mitchell, the AJC's Washington correspondent, to talk about uh, a grueling, (laughs) up-in-the-air batch of races in Georgia uh, I know we both had really long nights, really long days. Uh, how you doing, Tia? I'm doing okay. Plugging away. Plugging plug away. Um, and uh, and as we're speaking right now, it's still a little bit up in the air um, with the, both the presidential race and the race between Senator Perdue and John Ossoff. So we'll start with the race we do know. Uh, thankfully, we know at least one of the three big races, and that is that uh, Senator Kelly Leffler will face Reverend Raphael Warnock in January 5th. We're not sure yet if that will help determine control of the U.S. Senate. There's a lot of ifs. There's, there's still a possibility it could, but there's a lot of things that have to happen before that. But either way, we know that Georgia will be the center of the political universe in January, just as we long, long thought, because with 20 candidates on the ballot, there was no real path to anyone getting a majority of the vote. And that's exactly what happened. Uh, Warnock and Leffler were both really hovering around the the high 20s and low 30s. It's where we thought we were going to be, but I think it's interesting to be in this reality now where Florida, I mean, sorry, where Georgia is going to be get all the attention because it is possible that Democrats can get to 48 U.S. senators. And if that's the case, then those two Senate seats in, in Georgia could get Democrats in the majority if Biden wins the presidency, which would make Kamala Harris the tiebreaker. Yeah, you're exactly right. And and look, and I just, uh, you know, recently tweeted about this. Um, by the time you guys hear this, it might not be the truth anymore. But here's the strange but plausible scenario. If Peters in the Democrat in Michigan wins, carries his seat in Michigan, and if Biden wins the White House, and if Ossoff forces David Perdue into a overtime, then Georgia's twin runoffs could determine control of the Senate. So a lot of things, a lot of dominoes have to fall first, but um, that is the scenario. But either way, again, we're going to have a, a very uh, pitched, uh, a heated matchup between Kelly Leffler and Reverend Warnock. Um, and, you know, what was surprising to me was that the Republican race, I know that, that, that Kelly Leffler led Doug Collins a lot of the polls, but the Republican race was not nearly as tight as I thought it would be. I thought, I thought we might even be talking about that side of the race this morning as well. 
um, about how close that was because the polls were, you know, because ballots might have been out in Republican territories and those could help determine who is going to be facing Warnock. Instead, really long before midnight, I mean, a few hours after the polls closed, um, Doug Collins ca- called uh, called Kelly Leffler to concede and, and, and offer his full support. Yeah, and I can't wait to see what the maps look like. Where was Leffler strong? You know, did did Marjorie Taylor Greene in Northwest Georgia help her, you know, build up her support and build up a firewall? You know, was Northeast Georgia, which is kind of Doug Collins' stomping ground, you know, was that pretty solid for him or was or did he struggle to gain a foothold anywhere in Georgia? Those are things that are going to take some time to sort out once all the results are in and, you know, the the colleagues of ours who can work their magic and, and show us some trends. But I think it'll be interesting to see if there was anywhere that Doug Collins was strong um, or if Kelly Leffler was just able her message and the money just outmuscled him everywhere. Yep, I wrote about it a little bit this morning. Um, and because these are again were preliminary results, but they, they they showed a trend, and one of the trends it showed was Kelly Leffler was able to come in second place in Metro Atlanta as the top Republican, because obviously Reverend Warnock won all these very populous blue counties in Metro Atlanta, but Kelly Leffler was the, the out out outdid uh, Doug Collins in these very populous counties, so that was important for her campaign. Secondly. Um, she uh, did better than Collins in two of the most important Republican counties in Georgia, and that are the exurbs of Forsyth and Cherokee County. Um, and so that really helped uh, build a little cushion. And, uh, and, and thirdly, you're right about uh, northwest Georgia, Marjorie Taylor Greene's area. Um, there are some counties where she approached 50 percent on her own. Um, with such a big, uh, with, with such a heavy ballot, with such a crowded ballot, that's a big deal. And again, like her, her campaign was thrilled at building those cushions, especially in Forsyth and Cherokee, um, to help offset what were big gains from Doug Collins and his home territory of Hall County in that area. So um, we are, uh, uh, we're still waiting for some more of those results. But that that appears to be um, how she really fueled her 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 success there. Meanwhile, Reverend Warnock. Um, who is at near 40s in some of the polls, um, kind of underperformed. I mean, he's at 30, 31 uh, as results are still coming in, but he is not going to get to 40. Um, and, and, the, and the surprise to me was it's not Matt Lieberman or Ed Tarver, who we've talked a lot about on these shows, who, who was the second Democrat. It was Deborah Jackson, a former Lithonia mayor, um, who had really no semblance of a campaign. She's very popular in her in South Cab, which is one of the biggest Democratic strongholds. But she ended up getting 300,000 plus votes. Yeah, that's going to be interesting because, you know, now it's head to head. And again, as we've been saying, I know folks on this show are probably tired of me saying it, but Democrats are still struggling to win statewide in Georgia. It has not happened yet, and it hasn't happened in quite some time. And if Warnock wants to to win this 30 percent as the leading candidate with all the high profile endorsements, um, that's not going to work in January. That's not, you know, that's not looking good when you put, you know, Doug Collins and Kelly Leffler have already made it clear they're going to play nice and they're going to pretend like they didn't say all those really bad things about each other. And if you put Leffler and Collins coalition together, you got 50%. Yeah, you're, you're right around there. And there's a couple different dynamics. 
uh, working here. I mean, as you said, no Democrat has won statewide office in Georgia since 2006. No Democrat has won presidential contest in Georgia since 1982. And no Democrat has ever won a statewide runoff in Georgia. That's since 1992. And Republicans have just dominated those contests, including uh, two two victories in 2018's midterm extra innings contests for Secretary of State and a Public Service Commissioner seat. So Republicans have a, a very solid track record. But I, but as I kind of say, all bets are off if this race, uh, if this runoff determines control of the U.S. Senate. Because all sorts of attention, money, resources, everything, Trump, Biden, whoever, they'll all be back in Georgia campaigning like it, like it was campaigning for a presidential election. Right. And that also, I've said all along that I think it helps Democrats if, by some chance, the Purdue-Ossoff race also goes to a runoff. We don't know if that will happen, and I know we're going to talk about that more. But if there are two races on the ballot, even more to, to even the playing field for Democrats. Yeah, before we get there, let's talk about the presidential contest, which which is, again, as of this taping, hanging in the balance. It's about 83,000 votes separating uh, President Trump and, and Joe Biden in Georgia. Um, you know, it was one of those scenarios where early in the night, President Trump had jumped out to, you know, an early advantage um, based on rural counties that reported early. And of course, as we've been warning folks, and as every everyone in the media has been warning folks, to be patient, take your time, because these mail-in ballots tilt Democratic, mostly because Democrats were very aggressive about encouraging uh, their supporters to, to either vote early or vote by mail. And so as these ballots are get, were getting counted, they started giving Democrats a, uh, a bigger and bigger, uh, um, uh, not advantage, but they cut into the Republican lead. And there was a moment I was at the Georgia Republican uh, party's uh, big uh, bash last night. And there was a moment where I could just hear a rustling through the crowd because the needle in the New York Times sent out an alert saying that Georgia was uh, was was leaning towards Joe Biden's campaign. And, and no one understood why, because the results, Trump still had a hefty lead. But as we have been saying, as these returns come in, they, they narrowed the race. And, and, and right now, there's still no telling who will win. Uh, Trump probably still has an advantage. Um, but Democrats are are pretty happy with where they're at with uh, with about 100, let's say, 80,000 ballots still outstanding in Georgia and down by about 83,000 votes. Right. And I think that, again, it's a great sign for Democrats if they come close, because the closer you are, the more you prove that it can happen with the right candidate and the right timing. Um, but I'd still think Democrats can't be too happy unless they actually put it over the mark because there isn't a lot for Democrats to celebrate um, in Georgia. And definitely, you know, there are a lot of states across the nation where Democrats are doing some soul searching. But, you know, I know that it was never, it was always Trump's race to lose. So if Trump wins Georgia, it's not a huge upset. But Biden winning Georgia is like the hopes and the dreams of the Democratic Party of Georgia. They want to be in the mix. They want to be considered a battleground state. And if they fall short, that's going to lead to a lot of questions because there were a lot of resources and Obama and Kamala Harris and and folks coming to Georgia um, hoping that Democrats could win. Uh, you're exactly right. There's, there's no moral victories for Democrats in Georgia anymore. 
Um, you know, there was some kind of scattered talk about how, how yes, their, their late push, uh, you know, persuaded, forced Donald Trump to play defense and shift resources away from other battleground states. But of course, as we look at the map now, um, we know, and we are kind of always did know that the main battleground was going to be the upper Midwest. And, that, and that's where Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, uh, to a degree, Minnesota, Ohio were, were, were heavily contested. Um, and so Georgia, you know, we're used to being the afterthought in these races with no visits. We got visits, especially in the last week. Um, but Democrats are going to go nothing short of a victory would, would, would appease them. And I get it because they've been um, they, they were so close in 2018, you know, coming within a point and a half in the governor's race of of winning that that seat. And Stacey Abrams, um, who is the nominee, has put everything into two, two, two different uh, initiatives, well, a couple of different initiatives. Um, but, but two of them were voting rights and then making Georgia competitive. Um, and they both kind of go hand in hand. Right. And, you know, I think Stacey Abrams, you know, we've got to give her credit for creating the blueprint. We've got to give her credit for working really, really hard for Democrats. You know, she lends Democratic candidates a lot of credibility, not just in Georgia, but across the nation. She is the leading Democratic figure in Georgia and one of the leading Democratic voices in America. Um, But... I think the party still has to look and see what else needs to be done to actually put some wins in the column. You know, strategy and um, a message and a vision can only take you so far if you're not logging some big wins. And conversely, Republicans have to worry about their margins in uh, in Georgia because um, they can't rely on getting 90% of the vote in some of these rural counties anymore that, that are, that only have a population of a few thousand people, right? So their strategy this year was to offset democratic gains by running up the tally in rural red counties throughout Georgia. Um, and they did. And right now it has put them in a decent position of, of keeping the state red in, um, in both, uh, in both the, the, the head-to-head Senate race between Ossoff and Purdue and, and the presidential contest. But that formula, as Republicans have warned for a very long time, isn't going to work too much longer. Um, you can't rely on running up the score with white conservatives um, when, when the population is getting younger and more diverse. And the electorate, adding a million new voters to the electorate since 2016, has made the electorate younger and more diverse. And, and secondly, um, the suburbs. If you look at... The biggest gains from 2016 compared to 2020, it was Democrats in in the suburbs and even to a degree in the exurbs cut Republican margins. Well, they won the suburbs by bigger margins and they started cutting Republican margins in those places I mentioned earlier that are so important for Republicans, like um, like some of those exurban counties, um, Fayette. It's not Fayette, it's not really an exurb, but Fayette County is one of them where Democrats improved on 2020. Um uh, areas like Cherokee, Forsyth, where they kept Republican margins down a little bit, um, and and that's part of the you know that's part of the name of the game here for Democrats. The biggest shift, uh, or at least one of the biggest shifts from twenty twenty to, tw- to from twenty sixteen to twenty twenty was in Henry County. Um, Democrats won that county by about sixty percent of the vote, uh, and it was uh, it was um, you know in the in the mid fifties um, four years ago. 
and they, they did better in Cherokee County. They did better in Forsyth County. They did better in Jackson County. These are still counties like Jackson where, where Donald Trump won it by 78% of the vote, but he didn't win it by 85% of the vote, right? So Democrats will take those, and if they can keep on cutting into Republican margins and, and maximizing their votes in the suburbs of Atlanta, then they're, they're right there. Right. And I agree that Democrats are right there, but at least in 2020, the message is Democrats did all that and they still might not win statewide in Georgia. And let's get to that last race, the race between John Ossoff and David Perdue, which is also too close to call right now. And the difference is there's a bigger gap between um, between Ossoff and Perdue than there is between um, uh, Biden and Trump in Georgia. John Ossoff is underperforming um, Joe Biden by a, less than 100,000 votes, but enough to make it a harder haul for a, a bigger hill for him to climb. But the difference, too, is that in the presidential race, whoever has the major, uh, the plurality, you don't have to have 50% of the vote to win Georgia's 16 electoral votes. Um, so whoever's on top wins. But in a statewide Senate contest, just like the other race, you've got to have a majority of the vote. And if Ossoff can keep on eating into David Perdue's lead, um, he can pull him beneath 50% mark. And right now, as we're taping this, David Perdue is around 50.6. Right. And I think that one is interesting because they're Democrats kind of wishful the most, even, you know, during the polling, really Democrats were hoping it would go to a runoff. I don't think Democrats thought John Ossoff could take Perdue out, you know, in the general election. They knew they would need a runoff. But now the question is, could Purdue possibly win outright now and and not face the runoff? Um, again, like you said, the the gap between the two is wide enough that the last bit of vote counting that you're seeing may not be enough to get Ossoff close enough to go to a runoff. So it may be, again, that this is another statewide race that remains in the Republican column, despite the gains, uh, despite record turnout, despite the changing demographics um, that are helping Democrats win votes in the Atlanta suburbs. Yeah, and it's, and it's very close. Um, 50.6% is where where Ossoff is right now at this, I mean, sorry, where Purdue is right now at this moment. Ossoff is around 47, and the libertarian Shane Hazel is about 2%, 2.3% of the vote, 100,000 votes, which is an, which could be, end up being enough to force um, a, a runoff. A lot of things unknown, but we do know some other things. <laughs> Down ticket um, with some several new faces who are joining Georgia's congressional delegation. Yes, so the, I've been paying a lot of attention. We've got... Let's see here. We had four open seats and those seats pretty much went the way we thought they would go. Of course, you know, three of those four seats weren't competitive at all. You had Nakima Williams, who will succeed uh, John Lewis in Congress, even though we still have that special election to see who will fill a little bit of Representative Lewis's uh, term uh, for a couple of weeks, whoever wins that special election probably won't ever even step foot in Washington. Um, but Nakima Williams will spend two years in Washington in District 5. In District 9, Andrew Clyde pretty easily won against the Democrat for Doug Collins's old seat. And then in District 14, you have Marjorie Taylor Greene, the QAnon supporting candidate, the um, K- 
candidate of problematic posts and videos on social media. And um, if folks think she's going to change her ways and, uh, you know, become more of a statesman now that she's going to Congress. She's already tossed that out of the window. She is being herself on social media. Nothing has changed as controversial as ever. And then the one competitive open race, which is that District 7 race, uh, Rob Woodall, um, Carolyn Bordeaux almost took him out as an incumbent two years ago. He decided to retire. She ran again. And this time the Republican candidate was Rich McCormick. He looked really good on paper. He's a freaking doctor. You know, he went to Morehouse School of Medicine. Right. He's a veteran, both Marines and Navy. So but even though the race has not yet been called, Bordeaux is way ahead. And so um, she's already uh, declared victory. Um, And when I say way ahead, I say, you know, three percentage points ahead. Um, So, again, the AP has not called the race, but Bordeaux believes that uh, she has an insurmountable lead. Um, And uh, Lucy McBath, she it wasn't an open race, but it was a close one. You know, we had Lucy McBath in her rematch against Karen Handel. And now in that race, Lucy McBath was way ahead. She um, that race has been called. Already, McBath declared the winner, and uh, she had well over 50% against Karen Handel. Yeah, that race just didn't feel as competitive this this cycle. Um, and I, I remember thinking in 2018 um, that, that that race was the one— Lucy McBath's vi- vi- victory in 2018 was, was kind of the surprise of the, of the midterm in Georgia— um, because I think a lot of people, especially people in Washington who are watching these races closely, thought Carolyn Bordeaux would actually, who ran in 2018 against Rob Woodall, that she would actually win uh, the 7th district next door in Gwinnett and that Handel would hold on in the 6th district. And instead it was a flip. Um, uh, Lucy McBath upsets Karen Handel and then Rob Woodall barely, by the skin of his teeth, beats um, Carolyn Bordeaux by just a f- 400 or so votes and then decides not to stand for, for another Term and so now you've got Democrats really solidifying their control of of the suburbs in Congress with both those victories, at least those apparent victories when it comes to the seventh district. Um, but look, I mean, as I look at this, the vote totals right now, um, there's about ninety five or so percent of 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 uh, estimated votes reported, and many of those votes remain in Gwinnett County, which is which is the Democratic stronghold. So it's looking very good for Carolyn Bordeaux. And as you mentioned, she's already declared victory and and has given a victory speech. Right. Um, We should note, as of our recording, Rich McCormick, the Republican, has not conceded. But his uh, campaign has been very quiet. They did not have uh, any events or media availability on Election Day. So we really don't know, other than them telling us that they're waiting to ensure all votes are counted. Um but we know, like you said, the outstanding ballots are in Gwinnett. In Gwinnett, again, that's one transformation we have seen Democrats made that Gwinnett has turned pretty blue um, over the past four years. Um, and then we should also note two years ago, I, I think I'm right about this, two years ago, Georgia only had one woman in the congressional delegation, um, Karen Handel and then, and then Lucy McBath. And now Georgia has... Uh, apparently four, right? As long as as long as Carolyn Bordeaux holds out, you got Carolyn Bordeaux, uh, Lucy McBath, 
Nakima Williams, who won John Lewis's old Congress seat, and um, and then of course Marjorie Taylor Greene. So four of right. Georgia's uh, fourteen um, c- Congress members are female now, which is which is I'm sure a record in Georgia. Right, and again, for now she has a runoff, but for now Kelly Leffler's still in office. So there's you know you've got four on the House, one in the Senate, which is a record five because at any given time. Until Kelly Leffler joined the Senate, there was never more than one at any given time. When Kelly Leffler joined the Senate, her and McBath made two. And just last night, we went up to four. Yeah. And she was, and Kelly Leffler was the second female U.S. Senator in Georgia history, but the first to serve more than a day because way back when we had a senator who served for, for basically a day, um, a female senator yeah. who served for a day. So she's the first to actually serve for, for let's say, a week. Um, in that role, so a lot of changes, uh, a lot, a lot that we're still watching, and I know Tia, you got to get back and finish stories and deadline, and so so am I. But follow Tia on on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram or whatever. But her, her her Twitter account is Tia Reports, and she's got AJC on Washington. And I know you switch back and forth, especially when Marjorie Taylor Greene is uh, is 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 uh, is attacking you as she's attacked me before too on Twitter. Yep, it's always a fun time. <laughs> well, hang in there. Uh, and when are you going back to Washington? I leave. I'm headed home on Friday, but I'm thinking I'll be back in January. Oh, you'll definitely be back. And let's let's make it December <laughs> if you want to spend New Year's here. True, very true. More than likely, this is where I'll be on New Year's. Well, that's all for this week's edition of the Politically Georgia podcast. Head to AJC.com forward slash politics to subscribe to Politically Georgia. You'll get access to our daily newsletter, along with all of our stories and updates on all things Georgia politics. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast and rate us. It really means a lot to us when you do. And as always, thank you for listening. Donald Trump has been indicted in Atlanta. We have so many court dockets to follow, but we haven't really seen anything yet. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has covered every moment of this historic case. I've been writing about this investigation for two and a half years. Our team is led by reporters Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman. Follow our coverage on AJC.com and listen to new in-depth episodes of the award-winning podcast, Breakdown, The Trump Indictment, only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Our journalists at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution are working around the clock to keep you updated on all the developments surrounding the Trump indictment. Now the AJC is putting all of our coverage in one place with our new Trump 19 newsletter. Every Wednesday, you'll have our latest coverage and analysis on this historic case in your inbox. So sign up for free today at AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. That's all one word. AJC.com slash indictment newsletter.